Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, everyone. Tom Salemi. Thanks for joining us on the OIS Podcast. Before I get into this interview, I, I want to thank our sponsor of this week's podcast, Carl Zeiss Meditech. Of course, uh, Zeiss Medical Technology has been a, uh, an important partner with OIS for many years. Jim Mazo uh, has been... Uh, has been a pillar on our uh, on our stage. Uh, I'm seeing the uh, the masters of the industry panel now. Of course, he heads up the uh, ophthalmology unit at Zeiss, and uh, we're pleased to have their support for this podcast and, of course, for OIS at large. So, thanks Zeiss for supporting the OIS podcast. And coincidentally, uh, we're going to talk a bit about Zeiss's smile technology today because I had a chance to reconnect with Vance Thompson. Uh, everyone does know who Vance Thompson is, but uh, I'll say he's the Director of Refractive Surgery for Vance Thompson Vision in Sioux Falls. He's also a professor of ophthalmology at uh, Sanford School of Medicine. So Vance uh, is a uh, is just a great guy. He's <laughs> a guy I've, I've had the opportunity to spend a few dinners with at OISs, and uh, anyone who has talked to him, um, I think, walks away with the with the same opinion. But more importantly for this podcast, uh, we we talked, uh, he and I, on the podcast a few years ago, and he had highlighted some really promising technologies that have since uh, come to fruition, uh, including uh, Zeiss's smile procedure, which uh, Vance was involved in the uh, the clinical trials of and is now treating patients with, uh, including a Vidro's cross-linking uh, procedure, which, again, he has been involved with the trials of and is now treating patients, patients with. And uh, two earlier stage uh, uh, technologies as well, including Oculeve's NeuroStim for dry eye and uh, Calhoun, light adjust- Calhoun Vision's light adjustable lens. Calhoun, of course, is now known as RX Light. So uh, Vance is uh, four for four in pinpointing really promising technology. So I wanted to visit with him and, and sort of revisit those procedures and uh, see how some of the more recent newsmakers, uh, including Smile, which is just been making some headlines lately because their first procedures have been done in the U.S., how those are fitting into his practice. So we talked a bit about that. We talked a bit about uh, other um, advances that he sees coming down the pike so we can have another podcast in two or three years and and talk about those. And uh, he did mention a a couple of very interesting ones, so I hope you'll uh, listen in for that. Finally, uh, in our earlier podcast, he had given a great reading list, uh, books he gives to his staff members to read to uh, help sort of formulate the philosophy of the practice. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about those, and Vance will have a few more uh, uh, book recommendations uh, toward the end of the podcast. So I hope you enjoy this uh, conversation with Vance Thompson. I know I did. Before we get into it, though, I did want to remind you that OIS at ASCRS is coming up on May 4th in L.A., so go to OIS.net, and you will see uh, me, and you'll see, more importantly, people like Vance. And if you want to know it, uh, who will be on stage, go to ois.net again, check out the agenda, and then uh, and then register right away. All right, now let's get into this conversation with Vance Thompson. All right, well, Vance Thompson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. It's it's been a couple of years uh, since we've talked. Believe it or not, I, we've been podcasting since uh, 2014. So you were one of our earliest guests. And I just listened to it, and at the time, we hit upon a lot of interesting things, including the reading list that you have for your new employees, which I'd like to kind of revisit. We talked about the experience economy, 
Secret Service. I think Rating Fans was another book that you had suggested. And I want to, I want to see if your reading list has changed at all. But uh, this is the Innovation uh, Summit. So I wanted to hit upon some of the things that you were looking forward to at the time. And a lot of which you don't have to look forward to anymore because they're actually here. Including corneal cross-linking, uh, smile, and uh, well, Oculive we hope is, is coming soon. And I know you, you've worked on RX site as well. So uh, I, I did want to open up. I'm trying to open up the podcast a little differently. I, I want to f- know how you found your way to uh, to ophthalmology. Well, you know, my dad was a small town family doc in South Dakota. I thought I was going to be that, and and uh, but during medical school, spent time with an ophthalmologist changed my life and uh, went on to do a residency in ophthalmology and did a fellowship with Dan Dury and, and John Hunkler in Kansas City in advanced refractive and cataract surgery. And it not only set the stage for my career in anterior segment surgery, but also my career in research and development, because uh, with Dan, uh, I did the uh, partially sighted blind eye uh, eczema laser trial on PRK that eventually led me into PRK and LASIK research uh, since 1990 and uh, set the stage for a, a, a career that is heavily intersegment but also heavily research and development. And what was it about ophthalmology? What was your, your aha moment where I want to do this? This is the kind of physician I want to be. Do you remember that feeling or to just sort of come come over you slowly? Well, you know, I, I knew I wanted to take care of people, but it was my first time in surgery and seeing uh, an actual cataract surgery and then seeing them day one post-op as a medical student following a, a great ophthalmologist in South Dakota here by the name of Dr. Wilcoxon. And, uh, but that really started uh, my journey. It was an epiphany. And, and, uh, it struck me so hard that I worried about my joy if I didn't get into ophthalmology. And fortunately, I did. And, and I, just, I just absolutely love it. Well, you, you clearly uh, embraced it and, and it and it looks nice on you. So uh, it's a good job getting to where you, where you wanted to be and living your dream. So when we talked three years ago, um, we talked about some of the trials you worked on. And, and you and I talked just before we, we hit record and you mentioned you're now you've been an investigator in over 60 trials in ophthalmology. Is that right? In over 60 FDA monitored trials and they're a uh, vast majority device. And uh, all of them, you know, are three to six or seven year journeys. I have a team of, of, of six full time researchers. I have uh, two great partners, Dr. Allison Tendler and Dr. John Birdall, who also do research with me, and we have worked with a team of five amazing optometrists. Um, and so it, it does take a village to do clinical research, and we're super committed to it, and uh, uh, adds a neat dynamic to our practice. Did Was that always something that you wanted to uh, be part, have part of your ophthalmology practice, to, to be in on, on the cutting-edge technology, or did you sort of I don't know, meet building somewhere in some place in Hawaii and, and, and find yourself in innovation that way? Well, you know, uh, it started with my fellowship with Dan Dury and John Hunkler. They were involved in clinical research. And so one thing led to another, but it was the, the most exciting part of my fellowship. So that commitment happened there. And, uh, but folks like, you know, Bill Link and Dick Lindstrom and, Andy Corley and 
Steve Waite and, you know, uh, just, a you know, Jim Mazo, Ed Peterson. I keep, I could, I could make you a list, uh, that is quite long of people that I consider brothers and sisters and in, in ophthalmology who are all committed to the same thing. You know, we, we want to make this world a better place through quality research and, uh, and development. In dealing with patients, I'm curious when you bring up, we have this new innovative technology, you know, I think it might help you. Is there a difficulty in getting patients to buy into participating in these trials because it's their eyes, it's their vision, it's their everything? Or is it because it's so important to them that it's very easy to get them involved in the trials? Well, I tell you, it, it, it has to do with how much you as a physician believe in the technology. And so when companies bring quality technology to us to research and development, uh, the first thing we ask is, would we do that to ourselves? And, and if it's something that, that we would do to ourselves that either is meeting an unmet need or meeting a need in a better way than the current FDA-approved way, um, it, it's not hard to get to where you believe in it and then your patient uh, has a level of trust to be in a clinical trial. And, you know, the early adopter patients are oftentimes the ones that are attracted to, you know, advanced technology. And, and, and so it, it, it's, you got to believe in it as a doctor. It does take the right patient. Um, but, you know, through, quality education of not only the patient, but the, the referring doctors, uh, that's something that's extremely important to a clinical trial is, is recruitment. The other thing that I think is extremely important is compliance. And that is the patients are not only going to you know, do what the protocol asks, but they're going to follow through for their visits. And, and so quality recruitment and a high compliance rate is, is, is what has been uh, very, very helpful for growing our research program. This may be a knucklehead theory, but it just kind of occurred to me that we've seen this, this, um, this surge in, in innovation, these, these new clinical trials. At the same time, we're seeing the baby boom, boomer population, I think, move into a demographic where they're going to need assistance with their eyes. Has the, 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 the boomer generation um, moving again into this area where they may need eye care, is that helping is that helping with recruitment for clinical trials because it, there's a larger pool to draw from? And if so, any concerns long-term as, as that bubble that Bolas kind of works through the system that there'll be a harder time recruiting for clinical trials in the future for a future Vince Thompson, maybe not for yourself? No, no, I, I, I actually, you, you have to be committed and you have to learn the new technology well. And sometimes that means traveling to, different parts of, of the globe. But once we learn it well and can communicate it well to the doctors uh, uh, that refer to us and also the patients that come see us, we find that the recruitment uh, goes well. And mm -hmm. the, you know, yes, the, the boomer population is big. The, the millennials are, 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 are big, but a number of these technologies they've actually, you know, heard about happening in other parts of the world too. And so sometimes they feel like it's an honor to get them earlier uh, than waiting for FDA approval too. And, and so I, I really believe just through the, the work of understanding the technology and being able to communicate to a patient in a way that you believe 
in the technology is what leads to quality recruitment. And I think that'll be timeless. Um, I don't that we don't find it's that it's getting harder to recruit. As a matter of fact, it it I actually don't even feel like the the variable so much anymore is us or our patients. It's really the company that comes to us with the protocol and valuing the patient's time. And and what I mean by that is uh, paying them, you know, for their visits and the time and commitment and putting uh, a value on their the patient's willingness to be an early adopter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when uh, you know, the most powerful way to recruit to a, a trial is to, uh, you know, mention the F word free. And, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it and, and out of respect for these patients and their time, setting up good quality protocols with good, good quality monitoring and oversight so that we can be confident that that company has put their time in on, you know, inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria, and running a very tight protocol because we're trusting them that if we follow the rules, everything's going to be good. And that's why we like working with companies experienced in research, or at least they're using, uh, you know, a clinical research organization that brings experience to make sure that it's going well. So, for us, it's not so much about us or the patient. We're going to do our job. It's about the protocol and how quality the company is and what they're bringing to us to to deliver as a research uh, plan. All right, we're going to take a quick break just to uh, thank our sponsor, Zeiss. Zeiss, thank you for the uh, support of the OIS podcast. I enjoy doing this. We enjoy putting this out. It really does add, I think, a new texture, a new layer to the OIS experience. So uh, we appreciate the support from the ophthalmology world. So uh, thank you, Zeiss, for sponsoring the OIS podcast. Now let's get back into this conversation with Vance Thompson. Are you seeing a, a larger number of companies that perhaps uh, don't have their act together coming up with eye-based devices, maybe more companies that you're turning away? We, we saw some unfortunate news in, from Florida where there was a stem cell treatment that went went bad and... Uh, a couple of women lost their vision, but is there, because ophthalmology is growing in importance, do you see more companies, more, uh, I guess, less reputable companies coming in, pitching new ideas? Um, well, I, I don't, I don't really, um, you know, we work with the big strategics, uh, sure. all of them. And we, we work uh, also with uh, the startups and, you know, to tell you the truth, that's where the OIS uh, relationships are so helpful um, because you're working with companies uh, built on trust and reputation, and and we will we will say no uh, if it's uh, not a situation like that. It's a very very important commitment when a physician group chooses to deliver FDA monitored and IRB monitored research, and and so you know. Ophthalmology is blessed with having a, a core group of business people and and leaders in the big companies that are making sure the research is done in a quality way. We've had very good luck with the companies that come to us uh, for research. 
You certainly have, and we have very good luck at OAS having all you folks uh, attending on those big days. Amazing. Um, well, let's get into the group, the companies that you said yes to, and I think most recently uh, we had the uh, FDA the first smile procedure performed in the U.S. that got some headlines. I know you, as you mentioned, were involved in the clinical trials of that, and you've uh, you've conducted some procedures since uh, since the FDA approval. Right. Tell us a bit about what smile means to your practice and your patients. Well, you know, this dream of being able to perform a, a refractive lenticule extraction with with a very small side cut, a very small incision, if you will, um, much smaller than the side cut of LASIK, uh, is very compelling. Uh, you know, we know that the anterior corneal nerves um, and the kind of stronger part of the, part of the cornea, the anterior collagen lamellae, are cut less in smile. And so we see, uh, you know, improvements in corneal sensation and improvements in tear film quality because of that. Now, you know, we also have gotten very good with PRK and LASIK and managing the ocular surface. And so we can, you know, take very good care of the tear film with them also. But if someone is concerned about the dry eye effects of, of LASIK or some of the time it takes for tear film rehabilitation, um, they, get, they get excited about uh, the smile procedure. And still a big fan of PRK, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I do a lot of it. But patients aren't a big fan, of course, of the healing of the epithelial defect. And so, you know, the thing they are attracted to with PRK is no flap. And, and so when you can offer them a no-flap procedure like SMILE with the epithelium uh, intact, uh, you know, that first day and day one, and so that early comfort and that early, you know, vision return, even though that vision return isn't as fast as LASIK, it's faster than PRK, it's more comfortable than either one of them. And, you know, the vision of all three ends up in about the same place. They're all three very quality procedures. And I see, I see Smile as the first game changer that's came, come along in a while. So it's, it's already a very important part of my refractive surgery menu. PRK and LASIK aren't going to go away, but I do feel that if a patient is a candidate for all three, they're going to lean towards Smile. That's terrific news for, for Zeiss, which, of course, is one of our... Uh one of our supporters of OIS as well. And, and, and they've been, uh, they've been right there. I'm sure with the commercial launch, um, are they help? Are you getting some referrals from people who again, hear about smile on the news and they look up at their local smile provider and they find you your way is, is cause it seems to be getting a lot of headlines and a lot of publicity. Right. Well, we are, uh, we're seeing a very positive effect and I think it's going to have a positive effect on the, the, the world market on refractive surgery. I still am a believer in options, though. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if someone has a loose epithelium or uh, anterior membrane dystrophy, you know, they, PRK is a, a great option. If they need topography-guided laser treatments, PRK and LASIK are, are, are great options. If they have, a you know, uh, a quality cornea that, you know, is a great smile candidate that doesn't need any high order aberrations treated or a topographically guided treatment, they're, they're great for smile. And that's what I think grows the market is when people look at the sweet spots of these procedures and chooses the 
best procedure for that situation rather than being single-minded about a procedure. That's excellent. And and speaking of the cornea, we'll, we'll move into another uh, trial that we referenced a couple of years ago, uh, or at least it, I don't, it was past the trial phase, but it's a Vidro's corneal cross-linking system, which got right. approval last year. And uh, I know they, they rolled out, I think, commercially in full force in the fall. How has that uh, impacted your, your practice, and what are your patients saying about that? Well, you know, I've been an investigator in that trial also, and and we were uh, amazed uh, how it uh, stopped the progression of keratoconus um, and also very much helped our patients uh, with uh, ectasia after, uh, you know, laser vision correction. And, and But keratoconus patients, you know, have a tendency to rub their eyes. We make sure that and tell them that if you keep rubbing your eyes, you're going to win the tug of war and negate the positive effects of cross-linking. But it's really exciting to, to provide hope to these patients that haven't had much hope. They, they have felt like uh, they just don't have any control over their situation. So to be able to educate them on you know, why their cornea is progressing and to be able to offer them an option to lock it in has been very powerful. I think the biggest challenge right now in in, in cross-linking, and this will take care of itself with time, is identifying the patients at the beginning of the development of keratoconus. For instance, I feel like any patient uh, that is, you know, 10 or 12 years old having an eye exam should have a topography. A lot of people out there that aren't getting topographies at young ages, even with advancing astigmatism. So to wait till the keratoconus gets to be visually significant um, is happening uh, a lot right now, and I consider that a negative. And so as uh, the ophthalmic and optometric community becomes more aggressive with topographies in uh, becoming a part of all eye exams and, uh, and even, even young folks, I think you're going to see this be something that becomes the braces for the cornea that really reduces the incidence of keratoconus in the future. Terrific. And speaking of hope, uh, we're going to be uh, referencing and, and honoring uh, Oculive, another company you've worked with uh, at OIS at ASCRS coming up in uh, in LA. Uh, tell us a bit about your uh, experience with that, and are you uh, are you anticipating uh, good news from the FDA for that device? Hopefully this year, if not if not this spring. Yeah, I, I am. I am. When 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 I first started working with uh, Michael Ackerman, I was just uh, impressed with uh, the way he analyzed uh, an unmet, unmet need like uh, dry eye and uh, analyzed all the myriad of options to approach dry eye. And in the beginning, it was uh, going to be some uh, a device that was implanted near the lacrimal gland to, you know, stimulate uh, tear production uh, that way. And to watch uh, how he, he and his team came to the conclusion that the nasal septum, you know, was such uh, was innervated in, in, in a way that really uh, could uh, stimulate uh, not only the aqueous portion of the tear, um, which we thought early on uh, it was just going to stimulate, um, but to, to grow with it and mature it and develop it as a procedure that became a nasal septum stimulator that he identified and his team identified with his group of researchers um, 
that it wasn't just aqueous, mm-hmm. that it was also a mucin stimulant and a meibomian gland uh, stimulant, which as the three layers of the tear film, uh, we called a trifecta for the first time uh, in, in tear film production. And it was the, the, the first time that I would hear my patients say, it doesn't just make my eyes feel moister. It makes them feel more lubricated. Wow. And, 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 and I'm now reading a book at bedtime again. And they just did not want to give their device back because for the first time ever, they could on demand stimulate all three layers of their tear film. Very, very powerful technology and, and really exciting to be a part of the development of it. So what were, what were the challenges? Were there challenges to, to setting up that particular trial? Um, well, we thought at first that we were going to have a hard time having people put something in their nose, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a little awkward, you know, doing nasal septum exams as an ophthalmologist, but got over that pretty quick. Um, was amazed how uh, comfortable the patients were with it. And when it came to uh, showing them how to use the device, we thought it was going to be difficult. Um, But it didn't take long to realize that even though people don't do it with other people looking, they put something in their nose all the time, their finger. And, you know, (laughs) it was uh, interesting how intuitive it was to patients to put this device in their nose and stimulate their tears. And I would have never imagined at the beginning of this journey that that would be an intuitive process for a patient. It's even intuitive to explain to them how it makes tears. Mm -hmm. They've all bumped their nose or been punched and they've all had (laughs) their eyes tear. And, And so to think of something that's so awkward and yet it wasn't and became something that was so easy to assimilate into uh, a patient's daily routine um, was 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 very powerful. That's terrific. No, that's and that's you're right. That's a that's a very good comparison, and that certainly does get the the eyes tearing. So, um, it, it, do you have a sense of uh, when you'll be d- treating your first patient with that uh, with an FDA approved ocular device? Yeah, I'm 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 guessing this year. Great. So that's exciting to me. The final thing I want to look back on was just uh, um, Calhoun Vision, which is now uh, has renamed itself just recently RX Sight, and I understand that uh, that Bill Link has also joined the board. Uh, what it what what was your what excited you about that device, and and what are your hopes for that going forward? You know, having performed a lot of corneal refractive surgery uh, to achieve. Plano or zero refractive air and delight patients with their vision is has been an exciting. But what happened with the Calhoun study, now our excite that was so fascinating to me, was a couple things. One was the idea of reaching true Plano. So putting in an implant and telling a patient that part of this implant is, is polymerized or in its finalized state, but part of it is not polymerized. It's in a state where we can adjust its power with a light 
in your eye after you've healed for a few weeks. And so for the first time in the history of cataract surgery, we can actually customize an implant specifically to you while it's in your eye was one of the easiest clinical trials ever mm -hmm. for me to attract patients to, to recruit. And um, some people worried about the glasses because you need to wear UV protecting uh, spectacles during that three weeks. So you're not getting the ambient UV that's happening in our life uh, causing uh, an irregularity in the implant. And I have to tell you, it was super easy to get people to wear the goggles. It was not an issue. And what I loved about it is they actually brought me more patients, hmm. meaning they're out in society wearing their 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 uh, goggles or spectacles, and people were asking about them. It got them to talk about this for the first time ever implant that could be customized in your eye. Interesting. So that was that was one of the things that that blew me away. The other thing that blew me away after dialing in so many refractive errors into so many laser treatments, there really gets to be a small enough refractive error where you you don't dial into a laser to work on the cornea because of biologic healing variability. And I'll say, let's say a refractive error plus 0.25 minus 0.25 axis 180. That patient's seeing 2020 uncorrected. Uh, but but you show them that little correction and they, they can see a little better, but you talk to them about healing of the cornea and those variabilities. And oftentimes you just don't treat that level of refractive error. Well, when you start working on a polymer, like the RX site implant, and you dial in these small refractive errors that are so accurate with a polymer, and you reach true plano, and not only reaching true plano, you do it without touching the cornea leaving that corneal stroma in that tear film pristine. It blew me away the image quality that these patients felt that they had postoperatively. And, 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 and true evangelists for their vision after having the light adjustable lens, cataract surgery, and having that final adjustment and then lock-in and living with that vision for the rest of their life, I see it as a really big game changer. One of the other things I see as really big is when we talk about vision after cataract surgery, you know, do you want to have a little monovision or do you want to, you know, have things at a distance? Patients, we can't show them like we do when we're doing a laser consult, when someone doesn't have a cataract and you can show them with lenses, you know, here's what it's like distance, here's what it's like near, here's how they feel together. You can't simulate it like you can with a contact lens fit or a laser vision correction evaluation. With cataract surgery, we're painting word pictures. For the first time ever, I can tell a patient, you don't have to decide if you want one eye at zero correction or one eye at negative one. We can decide that after surgery. Let's take care of the cataract. We'll put in the light adjustable lens. Mm -hmm. And then three weeks post-op, we'll show you your optical options. And you can say, whoa. I like that one. And then we can adjust it to that. And then you can say, boom, you nailed it. Or maybe a little bit more. And we adjust it again. And then, boom, you nailed it, Doc. Let's lock it in. For the first time ever, 
will be able to do that. And I see that as, besides the eczema laser itself, probably that adjustable lens will be the biggest game changer I'll see in my career. Wow. You got a, a lot of games being changed while you're uh, you're practicing medicine these days, man. Yep. Yep. It's exciting. I get excited. <laughs> so so what's uh you were four for four uh at our earlier podcast. What's uh what are we gonna be talking about two or three years from now? What 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 exciting trials are you working on on, on new technologies? Well, I like you too much to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, um there is some uh you know super neat confidential uh stuff oh, right. uh, going on um you know i i will say you know um a couple of them that i can talk about are one of them is the uh pixel procedure that avidro is working on where you can treat the cornea in a in a zonal uh fashion so you don't lock the whole cornea in at the uh you know same intensity you uh, can deliver more energy to where the cornea, you know, needs it. And that'll help in keratoconus um, to create a more regularized or normalized uh, cross-linking effect. But it'll also help in refractive air. And I think we're going to see some exciting things from Avidro in the treatment of low levels of refractive air. And then one of the other areas I'm super excited about is human collagen, human tissue has been used in many parts of medicine for a long time, but we haven't really uh, utilized it to our advantage in, in, in the cornea. And there's a company called Alatex that, that is making uh, human collagen uh, onlays and inlays. And I think that's going to be exciting. And uh, that, that's exciting research. And I think it's going to be something that helps with the biocompatibility issue that we sometimes deal with with synthetic inlays. And so those are uh, a couple things that have been, uh, you know, really exciting developments. Uh, um, and I, I think we'll be hearing uh, more uh, and more about. Terrific. And then final question, kind of reference this at the start. Uh, I know we talked before about the uh, the reading you gave your new employees to sort of help build a, a sense of what, how you want your practice to present itself. Right. The experience economy, Secret Service, rating fans. Has that list changed at all? Are you, uh, have you found any new books to suggest for our OIS uh, book of the month? Well, you know, um, John DeJulius, so anyway, all three of those books are still very important. But mm -hmm. John DeJulius, who wrote Secret Service, also wrote, wrote a book called The Customer Service Revolution. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I have found that to be a, a very important uh, book uh, for my, my team. And then um, there's, you know, uh, Eric Topol, the, the, the futurist in, in medicine, um, has written a book that, I, that, that the title, I think, says it all about the modern day patient. And the title is The Patient Will See You Now. Mm -hmm. And and I think that to thrive in modern day medicine, it's so important that you not only create a great team culture as your foundation, because you have a, you have to have a great uh, team uh, experience to create a great patient experience. But it's that patient experience, especially when you get into elective medicine, um, that that patient experience is the true differentiator if you want to thrive uh, in modern day medicine. Terrific. Well, that's a great, uh, great place to end. Thank you for taking some time today to, to, uh, re to revisit the, uh, the new game changers that have come into, uh, 
technology and thanks for not sharing too many details on the stuff coming forward. I wouldn't want to, yeah. wouldn't <laughs> want to uh, violate any confidential, confidential agreement you have, but yeah. uh yeah. Great to talk to you as always, Vance, and I'll, I'll see you at uh, OIS at ASCRS, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Tom. Thank you so much, and thank you, OIS. That is a wrap. Vance Thompson, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for uh, getting us up to date on things like Smile and Crosslinking, and I'm so glad to hear that they're becoming an important part of your practice. And look forward to uh, some of the, the other game changers coming down the pike, including Oculive and RX Site. Thanks, uh, OIS podcast listeners, for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this visit with Vance Thompson. If uh, if you did, and if you enjoy this podcast overall, and I, I certainly hope you do, uh, give us a ranking on iTunes, please. It uh, it does help us out to uh, just spread the word about the podcast. You could also just spread the word about the podcast. Let your your friends and family know uh, where they should be listening if they have a, a, a strong an interest in ophthalmology and innovation, as you do. Finally, don't forget OIS at ASCRS is coming up on May 4th in LA. Go to OIS.net to register. So we'll see you in Los Angeles. All right, we're going to take a quick break just to uh, thank our sponsor, Zeiss. Zeiss, thank you for the uh, support of the OIS podcast. I enjoy doing this. We enjoy putting this out. It really does add, I think, a new texture, a new layer to the OIS experience. So uh, we appreciate the support from the ophthalmology world. So uh, thank you, Zeiss, for sponsoring the OIS podcast. Now let's get back into this conversation with Vance Thompson.